Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Chedem and Aleph by the Mishnah. The Mishnah continues the series of Mishnayot that have the same genre, which is Ein Bain. The Mishnayot are comparing two items that are very similar and giving the distinction between those two items. So again, this has nothing to do with our Masechta, but it is brought in here as corollary to the Mishnah discussed about Ein Bain Adar Rishon Adar As part of that, we have a series of these Mishnayot that are dealing with different topics throughout Shas. And this one deals with something from Nidarim. Ein the situation in which an individual restricted another person from getting benefit from him. So there's no difference between a person who says, you may not get benefit from me, that's mudar or he says, you may not get any benefit from my food. So the Gemara Nidarim Adaf Gimel gives the exact formulation of what he says in order for this to be true. It's not simply that he says that all food items of mine are restricted to you, but rather he says, any Hana'a that brings to eating is restricted on you. And the difference between those two is, Drisa Theregel, the ability to traverse the other individual's property or to enter the other person's property. The Kelim Shainz and utensils which are not used in food preparation. In terms of the nether that deals with food items that are restricted, it's not only restricting food items, it's restricting any hana'a that could bring to food or food consumption. So that means that it excludes food, that these other people are now restricted in getting benefit from this individual's food. Items that are used in preparation of food, it means any utensils that are used for ochel nefesh, as well as any monies that could be saved or garnered from this other individual that could be spent on food, all of those would be restricted. In addition to that, someone who is mudar hana'a says that you may not get any benefit from me. He adds on these additional items. The additional items are, first of all, kelim she'enosim behem ochel nefesh, utensils that are not used in food preparation. They would not be restricted from the other formulation which deals with hana'a that brings to consumption. That's not included because these aren't items that bring one to consumption, as opposed to when he says that you may not get any benefit from me, then those utensils do provide benefit and they would be problematic. The Gemara Nadarim makes it clear that that's only true if people lend out these utensils freely. If they charge for lending out these utensils and the individual then gives it to this other party to utilize, then he saved him the renter's fee because he lent it to him without charging him that money. That money that he saves from not having been charged the rental fee for the utensil, he can then spend on food. And therefore, that would also be restricted even for someone who's mudar hana'a mimachal. This individual said you may not get benefit from hana'a meviyali de machal, benefit that brings towards consumption. That is something that could bring towards consumption because you would save money, and that saved money could be expended on ochal, on food items. And therefore, that would also be restricted. So we're only talking about case here where utensils that are not used in food preparation that are lent out freely without any compensation that's being waived. So the individual then restricts on another party the ability to get hana from things that bring to machal, those would not be included. The additional item is drisata regel, which is the ability to traverse his property, walk into his property. That has nothing to do with machal. That's not hana'a that brings to consumption. It's simply hana'a. It's a benefit that one gets. And that benefit would be restricted if the individual says, you may not get any hana'a from me, but it would not be restricted if he says, you can't get any hana'a from me that brings to consumption. Now, the Gemara will do this in each of these cases, which is, how they inyan kelim, shosim shavim. What you can infer from the Mishnah is the fact that if they are utensils that are used in food preparation, then that person would be restricted in them, whether the restriction was hana'a, person said, you may not get any benefit from me, or the person said, you may not get any benefit that leads to consumption, both of those would then restrict you from using or gaining benefit from this individual's utensils that are used in food preparation. Now, Drisa Teregel, the Gemara is a little surprised that Drisa Teregel, if you are Mudar Hana'a, someone says, you may not get Hana from me, that you're not allowed to traverse their property. Because, hello, kap de inche. People are not makpeed on this. This isn't something that people care about. The Gemara's assumption is that there are certain things that people waive or rights that they waive to other parties. And they could be waiving that right to the other party because they like them or they want to give them some benefit. In that case, it would clearly be problematic because they'd be giving them hana'a. But there are other things that people waive a right to because they are indifferent. And that might be the case here with regards to property. When you allow people to traverse your property, it's not because you want to make everybody feel good. 
It's not because you're giving Hana to everybody else, but it's simply because you don't care. It doesn't bother you that people traverse the property or traverse your field. And so then why would that be restricted to someone who's mudar Hana? Even though you said that person can't get Hana from me, they're not really getting Hana from you because you don't really care about it. And that's why you're allowing people to go through or traverse the property. So Amarova Hamani... Rabbi Eliezer. The author of our Mishnah is Rabbi Eliezer. It's following the position of Rabbi Eliezer. Demar vitur asur Even if someone waves a right, that is considered to be hana'a. It's not even you have to grant them hana'a. You have to do something that gives them benefit. Even the simple waving of a right, that is considered to be hana'a. And therefore, someone who's restricted in getting hana'a would also be restricted in waving a right. And so Rabbi Eliezer has a more expansive view what is restricted here? It's not simply that you're granting them benefit or you're waiving something that you were entitled to, but simply you're not enforcing a right that you have. That in of itself is giving benefit to the other individual, even though you really don't care and you let anybody do it. Nevertheless, that waiving of a right, according to Rabbi Eliezer, is considered to be sufficient hana'ah that we would restrict it if the person says, you may not get hana from me, we wouldn't let you garner that benefit because it is considered to be a benefit. Tosafot over here discusses what exactly is this idea that he speaks about different situations in which it's not necessarily true. Sometimes you are makbid on people crossing through your property, and when you wave the right, it's really giving them something that is a benefit. When you let someone take a shortcut through your property, that's really something where you are waving a right, and you're doing it because you want to grant other parties benefit from your property. And so therefore you couldn't say halokapte inche because the Gemara in many other places says that people are makpid on such an item. And so the Rebbeinu Tam in the end surmises that this must be talking about a case of a bika. Talking about a valley full of fields where people aren't so careful or so makpid, assertive of their rights, to not have people traverse that area. And he says, with Svarahu Lamarke, it's just a logical argument that the Gemara is making that if it is that nobody cares and everybody allows it to happen, and that's general etiquette, then why is that considered to be problematic if you're mudar hana'ah? And so the answer is, it's Rabbi Eliezer who says, even the waving of a right, or even things that are matters of etiquette, that would be problematic. And therefore, according to Rabbi Eliezer, if there's a standard practice, for instance, when one sells a dozen eggs, to add in a baker's dozen and to add in a 13th egg, or same thing with rolls at the bakery, then one would not be permitted to do that, according to Rabbi Eliezer, for someone who's mudar hana. If the baker had taken a nether, not allowing this individual to get hana from him, he couldn't add in the 13th item, the baker's dozen, to give it to them. Even though it's simply the waving a right, or it's part of the natural etiquette of what people do in these business situations, Nevertheless, Rabbi Lazar considers that to be Hana'a, and therefore he would restrict it, whereas the other Tanaim who disagree think that it's not Hana'a. But since our Mishnah says that Drisat Regel is restricted, it must be following this position of Rabbi Eliezer, who says that Bitur is a sur. So now the next Mishnah says, En bein nidarim l'nidavot, el shin nidarim chayav ba'achriyutan, u'nidavot eno chayav ba'achriyutan. So this Mishnah should be somewhat familiar to us from the Gemarot that we learned in Rosh Hashanah with regards to Neder and Nedava, and that there is a fundamental difference between a Neder and Nedava. Both are commitments to donate something to the Mikdash, Korban, or monies to the Mikdash, but they are formulated in a different way. One is formulated, and we'll see this again in the Gemara in a second, that you say, Hare Alai, that I am promising to do something, either it's to bring a Korban, to donate this money, I am making a promise, and that's a Neder. The other possibility is a nedava, which is a donation, and that's formulated that this item is going to be a korban. These monies are going to be for hekdesh. The difference between them is whether you were responsible to replace them if they get stolen or lost. And the difference is, by a neder, the neder is taken, and we'll see again, this all will play out in the Gemara, that when the way the neder is taken, it puts the responsibility on the individual. It says, I will bring a korban, or I will donate this money to hekdesh. He doesn't specify the item. And even though later on he delineates or designates the item that he wants to give, whether it's the korban or the monies, the original nether was taken in such a formulation that he's the one that's obligated to bring it. And simply, this is a way to discharge it. But if that item disappears, the obligation still remains with him. On the other hand, the way that an indava is formulated is that the individual is saying that this item in particular is dedicated to be a korban. These monies are dedicated to hekdesh. And since it's a particular item, that's the item that discharges the obligation. There's no obligation on the individual. 
It's the item itself that must reach there in order to fulfill it. But that's it. If that item disappears or stolen or lost, you have no additional responsibility to fulfill the nether because the nether or the promise that you made is specifically associated with these monies or that animal. If that disappears or something wrong with it, then you don't have any obligation to bring it. So the Gemara says, That with regards to Baal Te'acher, they are both equal. And that's based on the Pasuk in Devarim, which we saw in the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, And so the Gemara there says, it uses both Neder and Nidava. And that indicates that both Neder and Nidava are subject to the restriction of Baal Te'acher, not delaying one's bringing of a Kurban, that they're responsible to bring up to the Mikdash. And there we had the Machloke Tanaim, as to whether it's one regal, three regalim, or the regalim in order, is what triggers the Baal Te'acher. What Gemara is saying is that the Mishnah draws a distinction between Nidar and Nidava, and since it doesn't make this distinction, it's showing that it must be implying that those are equal. And that means that both of them are subject to Baal Te'acher, both of them are subject to the lab of delaying bringing them to the Mikdash, and that's based on that limo that we saw in Rosh Hashanah. It's not autumn. The Nagamara moves on to something else to explain the distinction between nether and nedava. Ezu nether, what is a nether? Omer hare alai ola. As we explained before in the Mishnah, when a person says that I will bring an ola. Ezu nedava. What's a nedava? Omer is zo ola. He points to an animal and says, this animal will be an ola. Ma ben nedarim nedavot. What's the difference between a nether and nedava? Nedarim. In the case of a nether, metu, if the animal that you designated to fulfill your nether dies, o nignivu, o abdu, it was lost or stolen, chayab you're still responsible to bring the korban, you still have an obligation to fulfill your nether. That's not true by nidava. Nidavot, metu, if it dies, o nignivu, if it was stolen, o abdu, or it was lost, enu chayab you're not responsible to replace them because the item itself was dedicated to be the korban. Now that it's gone, you have no additional responsibility left. Kamar wants to understand, okay, that distinction that we saw in the Mishnah that's found in Kinin, and also we quoted in Rosh Hashanah, which is the basis for the Aim Bain in our Mishnah, where is the source for that? The Tanrubanan, that's based on the Pasuk that's found by the Ola. The Ola says, that it will be a Ritzui, it will be pleasing to Hashem to be a kapara for him. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Etcha alav chayav v'achriyuto. Ve'etcha enu alav, enu chayav v'achriyuto. The word alav over here, according to Rashi, speaks to an obligation on him. What does that mean? My mashmo. How do you see that? Rabbi Yitzhak bar Abdimi, kemen damar alai, keman ta'in katfei dami. Once a person says it's on me, the neder, alav, placing it on you, means like placing a load on yourself, on your shoulders. When you place a load on yourself, you're now responsible to take care of it. You're responsible to move it. And similar here, when you take a nether that includes the term alai, that's as if you have now taken personal responsibility to ensure that the nether will be carried out. How exactly the Drosha works, Rashi has a slightly more complicated way of formulating it. Rashi says, Hachi Dorish laid the crop. This is how he explains the puzzle. When is his nether going to be pleasing and discharged? Only once you've accomplished the kapara. So when is it nirtzalo? When you've done the kapara. Have your nirtza. Before you bring the kapara, lo nirtza. There is no ritzui. So how to know where is this true? Where is this din true that you're only nirtza? You've discharged your obligation, pleased that which you are obligated to do through bringing as kapara. That's when alav, when it's something that is an obligation on you. And that's called a nether, when it's an obligation on you. So Rashi learns it from the whole or the entirety of the pasuk. And then he says that the way to discharge it is to actually bring the kurban in the mikdash. Whereas Tosfot and Chulin, and maybe even Rashi and there suggest that it's enough that you bring it to the Azara that you don't have to actually bring the Korban to discharge your obligation with regards to the nether. Simply once it reaches the Azara, that's enough. You've already accomplished your nether. Something happens to the animal once it reaches the Azara. That will not be your responsibility. You've already discharged your obligation. You could learn the Limud, nothing to do with the Nirzolo the Chaper, but simply from the fact that the word Alav is extraneous, which means that you have a burden that you must take care of. And once it's Alav, 
There's no way to get rid of it until you've actually done that which you've articulated. Tosavot over here points out something that's going to be a problem in many of the Mishnayot here, which is that the Mishnah cites one or two distinctions between the items that are mentioned. But many times, there are additional distinctions that exist. And Tosavot over here says, in Ben Neder the Nedava, there's an additional distinction between a Nedava and a Neder. And that is that a Nedava can be brought from Maser, whereas a Neder can't be brought from Maser. Because you can bring your Shlamim from your Maser, Shani, but you can't bring or discharge your Neder from Maser Shani. Because you can't discharge an obligation that's on you with your Maser Shani. But you can elevate your Maeser Shani to bring it as a Kurban Shalomim. So he says that's another distinction. How come the Mishnah ignores it? So Tosavo gives two answers. First answer he gives is that the Mishnah is not dealing with that topic. It's dealing with the issue of a nether nedava once you've already made them and designated the animal. We're not talking about in the beginning when you're taking the nether or nedava and which animal you're using for the nether nedava. We're talking about once you've already chosen the animal and therefore this would be the sole distinction. The second thing he says is Tano Bashir. That the Tano left out things. It did not mention all the distinctions. It just mentioned one or two of the distinctions. And that's how Tosavot says that you have the possibility, even when there's Ain Ben, which sounds to be an exclusive type of statement, that it might be that the Tana leaves out things. The answer that's most compelling is the Sheet of the Rashba, who says that the Ain Ben here is not coming to be an exclusive or exhaustive list of the differences between these items, but it's focused on a particular area of differentiation or distinction between these two items. Not trying to tell you these are all the distinctions. It's telling you that this distinction exists between these two items. And it wants to focus on that distinction because it's an important distinction, but doesn't mean that it's an exclusive distinction. The only thing that's interesting about the Rashba's claim is that the Gemara is Midayek afterwards that there's something that is not mentioned in the Mishnah, and therefore they must be equal. But even in that statement of the Gemara, the Gemara doesn't mention everything. It only mentions particular items. So you could say, according to the Rashba, the Mishnah is focused on a very particular aspect or perspective within the two items that are mentioned there. And the Gemara itself, when it says that those two items are equal, they're also focusing on very particular items, but not on the generalities or covering the entirety of the differences between them. And we'll see that's going to come up in a number of these items where there seem to be additional distinctions between them, and they're not mentioned in the Mishnah. And you'd have to answer either a ton of a Shia, like Tosavot says, that it's left over, or you'll answer like the Rashbaugh, that the mission is not exhaustive, it's focusing on a particular aspect, or you'd have to come up like the Tosavot does over here, with a reason why it would leave out that item, or a distinction as to why the Mishnah is not speaking about that particular item. So the next Mishnah is, So this has to do with a parsha that's found in tail end of Parshat Mitzorah, with the problems of emissions of a male that is caused by some sort of problem or disease. Sometimes it's associated with gonorrhea, but the Torah determines it as Zav, and the Gemara in a number of places explains what the distinction is between the pussy discharge of Zav versus the seminal emission, which has a different consistency, and so the Gemara distinguishes between them, even though both of them are emitted by the male member. Now, if the person has sightings, those sightings then make them more and more intensely tamay or problematic. If they have a single sighting of Zav, then they have the same status as Ro'esh Sheikh Zerah, someone has a seminal mission, and therefore they would be tamay liyom for one day. If they have, according to this Mishnah, which is noting this, and we know this from the Mishnayot and Zavin, that the person has two emissions, and now with regards to a Zav, it does not matter over how many days it happens, just matters the number of emissions that they have, if the person has two emissions, they're now elevated to being Tamei for seven days. If they have an additional emission above that, a third emission, then they're not only Tamei for seven days, on the eighth day they're then going to be required to bring Korbanot, that are mentioned in Parshat Mitzorah, two birds, one an Ola, and one a Chatat. So the Mishnah notes that the only distinction between a person who has had two emissions of Zav and three emissions of Zav is that the one who has two emissions of Zav is subject to Tum'ah of seven days, whereas the one who has three emissions is subject to bringing a Korban, which is not true of the one who has two emissions. So Gemara says, what it does in all these cases, Regards to their level of Tum'ah 
as well as the requirements of Shiva Nikiim, Shavim, they are equal. So first of all, Mishkav Moshav is a very high level of Tumah. It's Tumah by which the individual lies on an item or sits on an item. They make that item Tameh, no matter how many items are under them, whether they're in contact with that item or not in contact with that item. So Vincent de Vizav lives on a stack with tens of mattresses. He makes every mattress that's below him Tameh. And similarly with Moshav, if he sits on something where there's a number of items stacked, even though he doesn't come into direct contact with the item, he makes it tame. That's as opposed to, if he actually touched the item, he's an Ava Tumah, the highest level of Tumah, and he makes that item into a Rishon Tumah that he touches. That Rishon Tumah cannot affect Kelim utensils, can only affect Ochlim Mashkim. On the other hand, Mishkav Moshav, the Tumah that is conveyed, is the same level as the Zav himself. Just like he's an Ava Tumah, he makes those items that are beneath him into an abatuma. If he lays on them or sits on them, again, even if he's not in contact with them, he makes them into an abatuma, which can be metameh, adam, people, kelim, utensils, and food items as well. So it's a very high level of tuma. What the Gemara is saying is that two emissions and three emissions are both subject to that high level of tuma that is associated with a Zav, that's brought in the Psukim, we'll just read them quickly so that you have a sense of it, but it says, So you see here that there's Mishkav, Moshav, or forms of Tumah that can convey Tumah. They're not simply that they are Tameh, they also convey Tumah. So there is a high level of Tumah that's conveyed, and that, the Gemara says, is applicable to both types of Zavin. Sfirat Shiva is the requirement that at the end of the Tumah period, the person becomes Tameh if he can put together seven days sequentially where he has no emission, which is based on the Pasuk, the Chidar Azav Mizovo, the Safra Lo Shivat Yamim Letarato, counts seven days Vitor, Chabes Begadav, and then he washes his clothing, I mean, puts him in the mikveh, he has to go into a live spring, get the hair, and then he is Tahor. So that requirement is both for a Zav with two emissions, and Zab with three emissions. Kamar wants to know, how do you know, first of all, that there's a distinction between two riot and three riot? And number two is, how do you know that for the other items, they are considered to be equal? In the Parshia of Zab, found in Perak Tedvav, Parshat Mitzora, in the second and third Pasuk, it speaks about a Zab. It says, so it says, something that's emitted, Zav, flowing out of his body. Zovo is, again, something that flows. The word Zav is mentioned twice, and the Pasuk ends, Tamehu, that is Tameh. And then the next Pasuk says, this is the Tumah that he is subject to when he has such an emission. Rar bisaro at Zovo, the flesh that is emitting the Zovo, or it's sealed up, the point of excretion, tumatohi, that has tuma. And again, in that postal, it says the word Zov three times, and it calls it Tameh. That's Rabbi Simai's position, which is the Katov counts two, and calls him Tameh. Shalosh, Vikaru Tameh. Ha-Ketzad, how do you resolve that? Shtayim tuma. Means you have two sightings, you're gonna be Tameh, Shalosh, the Korban. If you have three sightings, not only are you gonna be Tameh, and have to count the seven days of Tara, you also have to gonna bring a Korban. Ve'emar. So why don't we have a different possibility of how to solve this problem? Shtaim Tumah, below the Korban. That if you have two emissions, you're Tameh, and you don't have to bring a Korban. Shalosh, if you have three emissions, bring a Korban, below the Tumah, and you won't be subject to Tumah. So that'll be a distinction. Who says that the Three emissions is both Tameh and brings a Korban. Maybe the three emissions only brings a Korban. The Gemara says it's a very obvious answer, which brings into question what was the question in the first place. By definition, three emissions subsumes away the two emissions. So someone had two emissions, they're already Tameh. What took away the Tumah that the third emission all of a sudden is going to be without Tumah and only a Korban? So it doesn't make any sense, that's what the Gemara is saying, because two is subsumed in three. So then the question is, what was the Gemara thinking when it challenged this idea? Of course this is the case. Uh, the Pnei Yeshua wants to suggest over here that it was a suggestion that just the emission itself, the third emission itself, would not be Tameh. Not that the individual himself would not be Tameh, but as he's just trying to work out how the Gemara even posited such a question, since the answer is so obvious. 
Beimar Shtaim the Korban, below the Tumah. So do it the other way around. Let's say that two emissions force you to bring a Korban, but you're not Tameh. Shalosh, if you have three emissions, you have to bring a Korban, Vav Tumah, and then you're also Tameh. So maybe the additional item is the Tumah for the three emissions. Why is the additional item the Korban? It says, Losaka Datcho, Titania, that we wouldn't think, because you have a Brita that brings the mood from the Psukim, which speaks about the Korban of the Zav, and it says, Vasau Tamakwain. He brings two birds, and he will make a Chatat ve Ola, one as a Chatat, one as Ola, Vichiper Alava Kohen, Lifnei Hashem Mizovo. That he will then bring the Kapara, the Kohen, on behalf of this Zav, before Hashem Mizovo, from his emission, from his Zivut. And the Gemara says, Mitzat Zavim Mevin Korban, Mitzat Zavim Emevin Korban. Mizovo, the Mem, means from amongst those that have Zav, Someone brings a korban. Not everyone, because if, otherwise it would just say, V'chivar lav ha-kohen lifnei Hashem. Mizovol means only from amongst some of the zavin. Is that true? Ha-ketzai. Which ones is it? Ra-shalosh mevi. Shtayimenu mevi. That's like we learned, that you, three emissions, you bring a korban. Two emissions, you don't bring a korban. O'enu ela. Maybe it could be just the opposite way around. Ra-bet. If he saw it twice, maybe. Then he brings a korban. Ra-shalosh. Enu mevi. But he sees three emissions, maybe he doesn't bring a korban then. So Amart, so the Gemara here answers, or the Bright itself explains that logically that can't be the case. Amart, By definition, when you see three, you've already seen two. And so the korban obligation already exists. So if you thought two emissions triggered a need for a korban, then by definition the three emissions would also require a korban and it wouldn't disappear. But then you would not be fulfilling the puzzle that says mizovo. Only some Zavim bring it, not everyone. So the only way to have that be the case is it's uniquely associated with someone who has three emissions, they bring a Korban, not someone with two emissions. And therefore, it's only some Zavim that bring a Korban. Whereas by Tumah, it is applicable to all of the emissions, whether it's two or three emissions. Be'itzrich, the Rabbi Simai, be'itzrich mizovol. And we need the limud of Rabbi Simai that tells us two and three. And we need the mizovol to tell you not all Zavim are subject to that. Dimi Rabbi Simai, if we just had Rabbi Simai, Avamina, Kikushian, then I would have thought like our question. How do you know which one is subject to the Korban and which one is subject to the Tumah? You could have had it be two emissions brings a Korban, three emissions brings a Korban and is Tameh. How do you know it's the way that we said it, that two emissions is Tameh and three emissions is Tameh and brings a Korban? That we learn from Mizovol because it's something that's uniquely associated with only some Zavin. That can only be true if it's only associated with three. Because if it's associated with two, then three has it as well. So it has to be something associated with three, and that's how we know that the Korban is uniquely associated with three emissions. Kamash Malan, Mizovo. Be Mizovo, had I just had Mizovo, Vayidana Kamiriyot, I wouldn't know what the trigger for the Korban is. I know that the Korban is only for some Zavin, but how to know how many emissions trigger the Korban? Kamash Malan, that's what I need, Rabbi Simai, that the difference is between two emissions and three emissions. Once you reach three emissions, you bring a Korban. Beyond that, and there's no additional Chumrot, and anybody who has three or more emissions will bring a Korban and be Tameh, and they will require Shivinikim. And those Shivinikim are the only thing that's going to make them Tahor. So if they continue to have emissions, they can't have Shivinikim to come to Tahor. That's not increase the intensity of their Tumar, require any more Korbanot to be brought for them. Now, Hashta de Amart, Mizovo de Drosha. Now that you say Mizovo is a Drosha, then I have another Pasuk that I want to Darshan as well. Because it says, Prior to that, two psukim before, the chiyitara zav mizovo, that when the zav becomes tahor from his emission, he'll count seven days of tara, the chibes begadav, and then he will bring his clothing to the mikveh, and then he'll put, put himself into a live spring and be tahor. So that sounds like mizovo, that this only has application to some zavin. So that's what the Gemara says, my darishtbe. What do you do with Mizovo? How me baile that Mizovo we need the Kretanya. We have a brighter. The Khitarazav, the Kishiv Sok, Mizovo. That when does the Zav become Tahor? When he stops having sightings. When he stops having sightings, he counts seven days of Tahara. That cessation of the sightings is what allows him to become Tahor. That's because the Bazuk says the Khitarazav and not just simply the Khitar. Khitarazav means from his emission or from being a Zav. Mizovo. So what does Mizovo teach you? Mizovo, velo Mizovo, v'nig'o. If the individual is 
Tamei, both as a Zav and as a Mitzora, that he is both Tumot at the same time, he does not have to wait as a Tode Tarat Mitzora to remove his Tumat Haziva, which means that if he counts seven days of Tahara, at that point in time, he's now released from the Tumat Hazav. That won't do him much good because Mitzora has all the same tumult as a Zav. And so therefore he's still going to be subject to all the tumult that he had before. But at least with the guards to the din of Zav, he's discharged his obligation. Rashi says something interesting over here. Rashi says that after he counts the seven days of Shemunikim, he'll wait till he's ready to be Tahor me Mitzora. And the Mitzora, when he's ready to become Tahor and he's near Pa min Atzarat, he goes to the Mikveh. When he goes to the mikveh then, on that day that he goes for the tzarat, that will also count towards his shivinikim of the zav, and then he'll begin the count of seven days for the mitzorah, and then the eighth day for the korban. So the Turi Evan, on the other hand, says, why can't he go to the mikveh right away? You're going to say to me it makes no difference, because he won't be tahor, because mitzorah has all the same tumult. We're going to see in a second there is one tumah that is uniquely associated with the zav that does not apply to mitzorah, and that's called tumat hesait which is when a Zav moves an object, when he causes another object to shudder or move, he can make it Tamei. Even though he didn't come into direct contact with it, even though he didn't lift it up, he still makes it Tamei just by the fact that he causes it to move. And so that Tumat Hesait, if he went to the mikveh, could go away. And so the Torah Evan says, I don't understand why Rashi says to wait until Tarat HaMitzorah to go to the mikveh. You should go to the mikveh right away after the Shiva Nikim are completed. The Rashash claims that Rashi didn't say that because he holds like the Rambam in the parish of Mishnayot in Kelim that also a Mitzorah, Bimeyaz Gero, is Metamei Mishka Moshav and Hesait. And he has all the same tumult as a Zav. And if that's the case, there's no need to go to the Mikveh now because it's not going to change the status of the individual at all. Although Rashi in the Gemara Pesachim and other places seems to suggest that that isn't the case. And Tumat Hesait is uniquely associated with the Zav. Or, as Tosfo points out here, that Rashi in Psachim notes that there's a difference between the Mishkav Moshav of Mitzorah and the Mishkav Moshav of a Zav, which is the Mishkav Moshav of a Zav makes the items into an Abba Tumah, the Tamei Adam Bekelim, and Ochlim Mashkim. Whereas the Mishkav Moshav of a Mitzorah only is Mitamei Ochlim Mashkim, it's a Rishon Tumah, it's not Mitamei Adam Bekelim, because it's a Rishon Tumah, not an Abba Tumah, and therefore, there would also be a reason to go to the mikveh because you could lower the level or the intensity of the Tumah from Mishkab Moshav based on that Rashi in Psachim, even though Rashi over here seems to indicate that you wait for the Tvilah. So, so far we have two Limudim. One is, You don't have to go to the mikveh immediately when there's a cessation of the emissions. You have to first count the seven days and then only go to the mikveh. So that's the first Limud. There's no requirement to go to the mikveh, but rather, as the pasuk says, that he then he begins the count of seven days. So there's no requirement of mikveh before you do the count of shivinikim. Second limud is mizovo to teach you mizovo below mizovo v'nigo that there is an interim of capacity to become tahor from your tumata zav, even though you're still tamei because of nigaim because of being a mitzorah. You can still become Tahor in that period. The question as to whether you can go to the Mikveh right away after the seven days, you have to wait until you start becoming Tahor from the Surat. The Rosh uses this Limud over here to show that even though if you have two different types of Tumah, or two different types of restrictions, that you're allowed to remove one restriction at a time, even though there's other restrictions still exist. He actually uses it with regards to pots and pans coming from a non-Jew that need to be kashered. They only need to be kashered in order to be able to use them with hot items. They don't have to be kashered to use them with cold items. Then they can't be used with cold items until they go to the mikveh because there's tefillat kelim that is required when you buy something from an Jew. The Rosh says you can do tefillat kelim even though the kelim are still not kosher and then use them for cold items to drink something cold, to put something cold in there. And then you can later on do the hagalah in order to kasher them and remove the tarfut from inside the kelim. And then those two items can be separated, meaning that you can remove the problem of tefillat kelim before you remove the problem of the tarfut. And you can separate between the items. And he proves it from here that you can separate between the zav and the exorat, even though technically the zav is still tamay after he becomes Torah, because he's still a mitzorah. And so he says that's the same thing with regards to agalah and tefillat kelim. 
which goes against some of the other Rishonim, like the Rashbam, who thinks that you have to do the Haggadah first before you do the Tevilat Kelim, and that might deal with as to whether the Tevilat Kelim is a culmination of the Kashering process or simply a requirement of changing ownership from a Goy to a Jew. So now we have the third Limud, which is Mizovot Safar. The juxtaposition of Mizovot to the Safar in the Pasuk teaches us they made Al-Azav Baal Shetaun Sfirat Shiva, that a Zav who has two emissions requires Shiva Nikiim. So we said before that a Zav Baal is Tamei. How Tamei is he? He's so Tamei that he has the same requirement as a Zav Baal Shalosh Riyot, that he has to count seven days Shiva Nikiim before he can become Tor. When it says, Valodinu, why do I need a Pasuk to teach me that? Imitame Mishkav Moshav. We already determined that he has the same din of Mishkav Moshav as a Baal Shlosh Riyot because of the distinction that we saw from Rishimai before. So we saw that he is Tamei B'Mishkav Moshav, but he tends Svirat Shiva. If he has that high level of Tumah, then he certainly needs to get Tara that requires Shiva Nikim. When it says, Shomer Yom Keneged Yom Tuchiach. That's not necessarily true because we have another paradigm that does not have Shiva Nikim. And that is a woman who has a sighting of Dam that's outside of the first 11 days of her menstrual cycle. If she continues to see Dam after that, she converts from being a Nida into a called a Zava. Now, the Zava goes through different stages. That is, if she has a sighting for one day, she is a Zavaktana. She has a sighting for two days in a row, she's a Zavaktana still. She has sightings three days in a row, she becomes a Zava Gedola and then requires Shiva Nikim in order to become Torah. Getting all this detail when we reach these different issues throughout Shas, and especially in Masechet Nida. Let's just as quick background to what the Gemara is saying here. The Zavaktana, who's sighting, and for a woman, the sightings are determined by number of days and not number of sightings. No matter how many times she sees on a single day, that won't change the fact that if she has a sighting for one day, she's a Zavaktana, two days she's a Zavaktana, three days she becomes a Zavagidola. Now, a Zavagdola, as we said before, requires Shiva Nikim and according to Tahor. And that's what our women do today. They're machmir that they're always like a Zavagdola. And that's why they wait Shiva Nikim for reasons that we saw in both in the Gemara and Shabbat, as well as we're going to see again in Gemara and Nida. But a woman who is a Zavaktana, which means that she only has sighting for one day or two days beyond the normal 11 days that create or cause her to be a Nida, then she's called a Zavaktana or a Shomeret Yom Keneged Yom, which means that she only has to wait one day, Betara, to remove the Tumah that's caused. So Zavaktana, if she has a sighting on the 12th day, or again on the 13th day, if it's on the 12th day, she just has to wait the 13th day, Betara, goes to the mikveh during the day, and she's Tahor when the sun sets that night. She sees on the 12th and the 13th, she just has to wait on the 14th day, Betara, goes to the mikveh on that day, and if the sun sets on that day and she has no more sightings, she is Tahorah. So you see that a Shomeret Yom Keneged Yom Tochiach Shemetama Mishkavu Moshav a Zavaktana has the same din as a Nida or a Zavagdola and she is Mitama Mishkav Moshav similar to a Zav but in a Tuna Sfirat Shiva but come to Hora she doesn't require Shiva Nikim she only requires one day of Tara in order to come to Hora so Afata Altitama so then why are you surprised Alzeh that this Zav about Shtei Riyot even though he has Tumah of Mishkav Moshav, which is a high level of Tumah, maybe he doesn't require Shiv Nikim. Tamalomar, Mizovo, Visafar. Mitzat Zovo, Visafar. Even though he didn't have full Ziva, even though he's not a full Zav, he still counts the Shiva Nikim. He made Allah Zav, Bashte Riot. That teaches you that a Zav who has two sightings, Shaton Sfirat, Shiva. He requires a full seven days Shiva Nikim. Gemara asks, Amale Rapapa the Abai, Rapapa the student of Abai says to Abai, Maishna Hai Mizovo, the Marbi Bay Zab Baushteriot, Maishna Dahai Zovo, Mimait Bay Zab Baushteriot. We just learned before that with regards to the Kurban, we said that the word Mizovo comes to be an exclusive term and teaches you that only if you have three sightings do you bring a Kurban. If you have two sightings, you don't bring a Kurban. The Mizovo over here is teaching you that not only does a Baal Shlosh Riot require Shiv Nikim, even a Baal Shtei Riot requires Shiv Nikim, so it's an inclusive term. How come one time Mizovo is an exclusive term? One time Mizovo is an inclusive term. One time it excludes a Baal Shtei Riot, one time it includes a Baal Shtei Riot. The truth is that the question is a little more fundamental than that, which is that the drusha is different in each case. In the case of the Korban, we say Mizovo, 
It's talking about the Zav himself. It's saying not all Zavin bring a Korban. Only some Zavin bring a Korban. On the other hand, when we learn Mizovo here, in this puzzle with regards Mizovo Safar, we're saying that even if you only are a partial Zav, we're saying even if you're just a partial Zav, you are subject to the Shivnikim. What's a partial Zav? Someone has two Riyot and not three Riyot. He's a partial Zav. So you see that we are interpreting Mizovo in different ways. One time we're saying it means from amongst the Zavim, only some of them. And then in another case, we're saying, well, even if you're only just a partial Zav, then you are subject to this rule. The outcome of that is one of them is an inclusive term, means that Baal is included, and that's by Shivnikim. And the other term is an exclusive term that's saying that only some Zavin, but not a Zav Baal bring a Korban. So Rapapa's question is, why are you making that distinction? Amalei Abayi says back to him, if you think that the Mizovov is Safar is a mute, Lishto Kramine, then the Pasuk should just left out the word Mizovo. It doesn't need the word Zovo then. It could just say, Vitara Zav, Lo, Shivat Yomim. Midino. If you want to say then, it comes from a Kalvachomer, that you would then have to do seven days of Tara anyway, because he's Tamei Mishkav Moshav. We already pointed out, Shomeret Yom Keneged Yom Tochiach. Shomeret Yom Keneged Yom is a paradigm that says that's not true. She's mitama Mishkav Moshav, yet she only has to count one day of Tara. So there's no Kalvachomer logical argument that you can make that just because you're a Zab Ba'ashteriot and Tamei Mishkav Moshav, you have to wait seven days b'tara. mizovo below minigo. Wait, what about the other drasha that we just made? Mizovo below mizovo minigo. Imkein lichtov kra v'chiyatara zav. Just write v'chiyatara zav v'lishtok mizovo. Lead out the word mizovo. When the zav comes to her, then he counts shivinikim. No matter what he is, whether he's a mitzor or whether he's any other tumah, once he's tahor miziva, he goes out and he counts and he'll be tahor. So mizovo lomali. So then why do I need the word mizovo there? What's the extra word mizovo coming to teach me? That a Baal also requires Shiva Nikim. Because had it not been for the word Mizovo, I would have no way to assume that a Zav Baal would require Shiva Nikim. I can't learn just because he's Tamei Mishkav Moshav, high level of Tumah, he has Shiva Nikim, because we have a Shomer Yom Kenegad Yom, a Zavak Tana, that only has to wait one day B'tara, even though she's Mitama Mishkav Moshav. So there is no evidence that that would be the case. And if you tell me I needed to tell you that you could come to her as a Zav, even though you're a Mitzorah, I could have learned that out from Chitar Zav. Mizovo, then the extraneous word, what's it doing there? The only thing it could be doing there is coming to say that there's an additional Zav or someone else who also is required to suffer those Shiva Jamim. That's Mizovo. Someone only has partial emissions. Two, not three emissions, also requires Shiva Nikim. Okay, the next mission says, Embein Mitzorah Muzgar, the Mitzorah Muchlat. Ela priya u prima. So priya and prima are found in Parshat Tazria with regards to the Mitzorah. It says that Tzarua asher nega, person who has Tzarat, his clothes should be rent, they should be torn in tatters, and his hair should be grown out wild, and he has to cover his mouth, his face, he has to call out to anybody who approaches him that he is Tamei. As long as he has this Tzarat, Yitma, Tamei who? He will be Tamei. And he has to sit alone outside of the Machaneh. That is a requirement for someone who is a full-fledged Mitzorah. All of these things apply to him. The first of which is that he has to have Begadavu from him, The other thing is he has to cover his face, call out Tamei Tamei. The last thing, which is applicable now, we're going to see in the Gemara, to both a Mitzorah Muzgar and a Mitzorah Muchlat, is that he has to sit outside the Machaneh. He has to go outside, not only of the Beit HaMikdash, not only Harabait, but also outside of Yushalayim, or outside of any walled city in Eretz Yisrael. He has to go outside of the Shlosh Machanot. He can't even be in Machaneh Yisrael. He's outside the city. That's the story of the Arba Mitzoraim that's found in Malachim Bet. But they're found outside the city, when there's the siege of Aram around the city. So now the Mishnah says that the only distinction between a Mitzorah Muchlat, who is a Mitzorah who's been determined to have Tzorat, and a Mitzorah Muzgar is a Mitzorah waiting to find out if he is going to be a Mitzorah Muchlat, that he's determined to have Tzorat, is the fact that they don't have to do Priya and Prima, but everything else is the same. There are many different forms of Tzorat, Let's just talk about Ora Basar, Tzarat, that comes on the body of the individual. Over there, there are certain things that indicate Tumah right away. 
if there are white hairs that grow out of that tzarat, then the person's automatically tamay when he brings it to the Kohen. There's another form or way to become tamay, and that's called pishayon, which is the expansion of the tzarat. The expansion of the tzarat can only be determined if the person's locked up for a period of time, and we see whether it expands or not. That's called a mitzorah musgar. It comes to the Kohen. The Kohen doesn't see any immediate signs of tumah, whether it's white hairs or michya, healthy skin in the middle. Those would make him tamay right away. If the person doesn't have that, then we say is he's locked up for seven days. He's a musgar, locked up for seven days. Then the Kohen checks him at the end of the seven days. At the end of seven days, if it's expanded, he becomes tamay. Or if any of the other simanei tumah, like white hair or michya, show up, he'd be tamay. If it doesn't change its size, then he locks him up for additional seven days to see. If after that seven-day period there is no change in the tzorat, then the individual is discharged as a musgar, and he has to go through a partial tarah process in order to release himself, but he is not considered to be a mitzorah. On the other hand, during the period of hezger, he has the same din as a mitzorah muklat, as a mitzorah that's been locked up, that has all the trappings for tumah and all the other requirements that a mitzorah has, with the exception of priya and prima, prima meaning the tattered clothing, and priya means the hair grown out. That's what the Mishnah says. Then, ein ben tahor mitoch hezger, the tahor mitoch hechleit, a person who was a full-fledged mitzorah, that's a hechleit, if he becomes tahor, then he needs tiglachat v'tziporim. Then on the day that he tzorat is cured, he has to go to the mikveh, he has to shave his whole body, and he has to bring two tziporim, which the Kohen does a whole process of tahara, then he waits seven days, and then on the seventh day, he shaves all his hair again and goes to the mikveh. And then on the eighth day, he has to bring a korban mitzorah, which includes a chatat, olah, and an asham. That is the process to become tahor from tzorah. The mitzorah muchlat has to go through that process. The mitzorah muzgar does not have to go through that process, at least according to Rashi. Rashi says here that tiklachat v'tziporim are the two items that are mentioned because that's the beginning of the tarah process. But it means not just the Tzipurim, but all the things that come afterwards. Meaning that he doesn't have to wait for the seven days of Tara. He doesn't have to do the Korbanot that come on the eighth day. But the Mishnah, as Rashi says, is only speaking about Yom Tara To, the day of the Tara itself. What's the distinction between them? But there are other distinctions that come up, and this is what we noted before. What do you do with those other distinctions? There's some who disagree with Rashi. So the Sfat Emet brings in Agal that the Meiri does not agree with this and says that Vezevezeh Shavin, the Gavei Korbanot. This will become a bigger topic in Moet Katan, Antav Zayin, Amud Aleph, where Rashi makes some distinctions between a Mitzorah Muchlat and a Mitzorah Muzgar, one of which is the fact that Mitzorah Muzgar is not restricted in marital relations as opposed to a Mitzorah Muchlat, as well as the fact that Rashi there seems to say that a Mitzorah Muzgar doesn't get sent out of the three Machanot. And both Tosvot and other Rishonim over there are critical of Rashi's position based on our Mishnah here that gives the only distinctions between a Mitzorah Muzgar and Mitzorah Muchlat, as well as the Diok of the Gemara, that these are the items that they are Shaveh with, and we'll deal with that once we get to Moed Katan Zayin. But no, that's still an issue in the background. Again, you can answer here with regards to those other items, like the Rashba, that the Mishnah is not focused on everything, it's just focused on very particular items that it wants to emphasize or wants to discuss, but it's not covering everything that's there. That means that there could be things that are different, it could be things that are Shavin, and maybe that's what Rashi is suggesting in the Gemara in Moed Katan. The Gemara says over here, Halinyan Shiluach V'tumah, it comes to a Mitzor Muzgar, Mitzor Muchlat, then with regards to being sent out of the three Machanot, and the fact that they are fully Tamei, Zev Shavim, they are completely equal, and that's why the Ritvo and others criticize Rashi in Moed Katan, who suggests that a Mitzor Muzgar does not have to be sent out of Shlosh Machanot, it's pretty clear here in the Gemara that they believe that it is the case, he does. How do we know that a Mitzor Muzgar is subject to all the rules of a Mitzor Muchlat, with the exception of Priya and Prima? It says, after the second week of Hezger, the coin finds that the Surat has not expanded. On the second seven-day sequester, the Nega itself has diminished in its strength of whiteness. And it did not spread. The coin makes him Tahor then. That's a type of growth on the body that is not considered to be Surat and is Tahor. Then he takes his clothing, puts him in the mikveh, and he becomes tohor. So now, Gemara says, based on that pasuk, what does vitaher mean? That means that tohor mi priya prima, 
Taher, according to this view of Tani the Rav Shmuel Bar Yitzchak Kamei the Rav Huna, Taher implies something that was already Tahor. That's what Rashi says. Taher means Dimi'ikara, something that was already Tahor. So that means that something is already Tahor because it was never Tameh. So you have to, V'tiaroa Kohen, he's now Tahor, V'chibesi B'gadav, he has to wander his clothing, he has to go to the Mikveh, V'taher, and he's already Tahor. What do you mean he's already Tahor? He was a Mitzorah Muzgar, and he has all the rulings of a Meklat. So the answer is that there's something that he is Tahor from all the way along, he's exempted from all the way along, and that's Priya Prima. If you think the word V'taher means that something is Tahor all along, then what are you going to do with the Pasuk that's found by the Zav, Dichtiv? So we did the Pasuk that we just read before. It also has the word V'taher. Who becomes Tahor, even without bringing a Korban, what Tahara does he have that does not exist by Shlosh Riyot? We said before that a Baal Shteriyot has the same Tumah, same everything as a Baal Shlosh Riyot, he just doesn't have to bring a Korban. So then what Tahar do you have? Ela Tahor Hashta Militamei Klicheres Behesek. How are you going to explain it by the Zav? By the Zav, it's going to make him now Tahor for the unique aspect that the Zav has. And we mentioned before, and that's been noted here by the Gemara, that the Zav has a special type of Tumah that nobody else has. He has Tumah Nishkavu Moshav, which is found by a Zavah, Nida. It's also found by a Mitzorah. But he also has what's called Tumah Hesait, that if he even moves, causes an item to shake or move, he can make that item Tameh. So that unique aspect of his Tumah will go away when he goes to the live spring to make himself Tahor. Even though he has a sighting afterwards, he doesn't become Tameh retroactively. In order to become Tahor, the Zav has to count seven days if any time during the Shiva Nikim he has a sighting, it undermines the Shiva Nikim and he has to start the count for the Shiva Nikim again. When he gets to the seventh day, it's the final day of the Shiva Nikim, he goes into the live spring on that last day during the day. Even though he will not be Tahor until the sun sets on that day, because that will complete his Shiva Nikim, nevertheless he goes into the live spring on the seventh day itself. So once he's gone into the live spring, there's a reduction in the level of his Tumat. That reduction, Rabba points out, is what the word Tahir teaches you. Tahir means that once he's gone into the live spring, at that point in time he is Tahor. It's not really Tahor, because if he has another sighting, it'll all be undermined retroactively. So what Rabba says is that's true with regards to Tumat Nishkav and Moshav. If he has a sighting at that point, retroactively the Tumat Nishkav Moshav will apply to everything that happened during those seven days because they really weren't Shiva Nikim. He was still a Zav all along. But with regards to Tumat Heset, which is a unique Tumat that's associated with the Zav, once he goes into the live spring, that Tumat disappears there to forward. Meaning prospectively, he's no longer Tameh for that. If he has a sighting that undermines his Shiva Nikim, then prospectively he will have that Tumat again, but not retroactively. And that's what the limud is from the word vitaher. That comes to teach you that that one unique aspect of the Zav's Tumah is taken away when he goes to the live spring on the seventh day. And if he completes the seven days of Nikim, then he'll be Tahor from everything, and it won't be a problem. But if somehow it becomes undermined, he has a sighting before the end of the seventh day, it will undermine all the other tumults retroactively, and it'll be Tameh as if he was Tameh all along, with the exception of this Tumat Hasait, where he'd be Tahor between the time that he went to the live spring in the time that he had the new sighting. During that period of, that window of time, anything he touched, he had hesate with, would not become Tameh. So Hakanami, so too over here, by the case of the Mitzorah, Tahor is Hashem and Tameh Bibiyah the Mafreya. What is unique Tumah that is associated with the Mitzorah? The Mitzorah has a unique aspect, which is that, just like a Bayit that has Sarat on it, anyone who enters the house, or any item that's in the house becomes Tameh, so too a Mitzorah that enters into a house, makes the house Tameh or anything that's found inside of it Tameh. That's called Tumat Biyah. So that Tumat Biyah by a Mitzorah, the same thing, where by, if after he is a Mitzorah Muzgar, he then goes to the Mikvah and becomes Tahor, he no longer has the issue of Tumat Biyah that's associated with him. And even if the Tzorat comes back and expands, and he later on is Tameh, he still will be Tahor prospectively from the time that he was declared Tahor, until the time that he has this new sighting that makes him into a Mitzorah Tameh. That any house he entered turned to, that's Tefillah. As Rashi says, 
that Kalim that are found with him in a house will not be Tamei from that point forward that he was declared to be Mitzor and not to have Tzarat until the time that he gets the Tzarat back. So that's what the meaning of the word Betaher is. That has nothing to do with Priya and Frima. Elama So where does he learn it out from? So Rav actually learns it out from the Pasuk itself that talks about Priya and Prima, which is in the tail end of Parsha Tazria, says that Tzarua Asher Boanega Bigadavu Frumim Roshoya Farua. But Tzarua Asher Boanega. He learns from that. Who is the one that has the requirement of Priya Prima? Is someone who Tzarat is determined by his goof, meaning that whether he is has Tzarat or he doesn't have Tzarat. As long as he has Tzarat, he will be required to do this. If he is cured from Tzarat, he'll be released. Yatzazeh, that's not true of a Mitzora Muzgar. Mitzorah who is sequestered for the seven days, Shein Tzaratot Tuliyah Begufo El Beyamim. Doesn't matter if the Tzarat disappears during the middle of those seven days. The Kohen will not see him until the end of the seven days. And therefore his tara is determined by days, not by his goof, not by the curing of the tzorat. So only someone whose tzorat is determined by his tzorua asher boanega, the nega that's in him is the determining factor that makes him tamay or tahor, then that person has to have That's only true by mitzorah muchlat. Mitzorah muzgar, his determination is based on the number of days, not on whether the tzorat is cured or not cured, in the end, it will matter that it's cured, but he still has to wait the seven days no matter what happens. Whether it expands and he's Tameh, or whether it goes away and he's Tahor, he still has to wait out the seven days, and therefore it's not determined by his body. What about the next Pasuk, which is, That's the next Pasuk. So then why don't we say the same thing there? That only someone who is determine whether he's Tahor or Tameh by the Tzorat itself, he should be subject to being sent out of the Machaneh. And if someone is not determined by that, but rather by days, like the Motzor Muzgar, then he shouldn't have to be sent out of the Machaneh. If you say that's the case, doesn't the Mishnah say, That's that's what we said before, the Gemara's first diuk, that when it comes to Tumah and Shiluach Mechutz Tumachaneh, they are similar, and you have to be sent out of the Machaneh. So how can you make a diuk like that when the next pasuk doesn't allow for such a diuk? Amalei, Yemei, Kol Yemei, Lerabot Mitzorah Muzgar Lishiluach. Well, the next pasuk begins, Kol Yemei. So there's a reboy. It could have just said, Yemei Asher Nagabo, all the time, the days that the Nega is in him, Itmah, Tamehu, Batayi Yishim Mechutz Tumachaneh Moshevo. What is Kol Yumei? Kol Yumei is a reboy to say that Kol, everybody is subject to this din. Not only a Mitzorah Muchlat, but even a Mitzorah Muzgar is subject to this din. It says, Yehochi, if that's the case, Tiklach HaVetzipurim, Aitam Alo. Now the words Yehochi over here are somewhat problematic because the next statement of the Gemara has nothing to do with the previous statements of the Gemara. Never you can see the Oat Bet in the Bach takes out the word Yehochi over here and just starts. It's quoting the Mishnah saying, Tiklach HaVetzipurim, my time alone. What's the reason in the Mishnah that with the Mitzorah Muchlat has to bring the Tiglachad and Sipurim, and Mitzorah Muzgar does not have to bring it? What's interesting over here is that the Gemara doesn't say what they are Shavin for, only it leaves the difference that the Mishnah makes. Strange that the Gemara does not bring, like every other Mishnah, what is Shavin, it only tells you what the distinction is. Though the Sfat wants to keep the Hachi in and say that why would you even have a Havamina to say that a Mitzorah Muzgar requires Tiglachat, the shaving of his head, and Sipurim and bringing the birds that are found in the beginning of Parshat Mitzorah, because the Pasuk, as we saw before, says that when you find out that the Tzorat was not Tameh all along, then the person is Tahor, there's no other requirement. So he says, Ihochi is saying, well, if you interpret the Tahir to mean that he's not Tahor the Gamre, he's just Tahor from Tumat Biyah, that means that, or implies, that maybe there is additional requirements for him to become Tahor. And then, how do you know that Tiglach and Sipurim are not required by a Mitzor Muzgar. So that's how he connects it to the previous Gemara. Gemara says, How do we know that that's true? The Pasuk says in Parshat Mitzorah, Only someone who's Tarat Amitzorah 
is with the Kohen making him Tahor, that's what triggers the need for what's coming afterwards in that Parshia, which is all the Korbanot and all the trappings of how to make a Mitzorah Tahor. Yatzazeh, a Mitzorah Muzgar, is excluded from that. She Because his Rufuah is not determined by the Kohen saying that, that it's Tarat is cured. Because even if it is cured, he has to wait out the full seven days. So it's only someone who is Rufuah is the determining factor as to whether he has Tarat or doesn't have Tarat. That person is subject to all the rulings in the beginning of Parshat Mitzorah, like Tiglach HaTziporim and Korbanot. That's not true for a Mitzorah Muzgar who is not determined by just simply being cured or not cured. He has to wait out the seven days no matter what, and therefore he's not subject to that din. Which as noted before by Rashi, first day that the Kohen declares him to be Tahor, brings two birds, Eitzeresh, Nitoat, Vezov. The Kohen is Shuchet, the Tzipor, into the Maim Chaim that's found into a Kli Cheres. He takes the live bird and the eitz eres and the shni tolat and the azov, and he dips it into the water with the dam of the tzipor that was shechted, and then he sprinkles it onto the person who had tzarat seven times. That makes him tahor, and then he lets the tzipor achayal, pnei to fly away. And then the individual who is mitzora is mitayer begadav. He has to put his clothing in the mikveh. Gilach et kol He has to shave off all the hair on his body. And then, and then he has to go into the mikveh and become tohor. Then he can re-enter the machaneh. And then he has to still stay out of his oil for seven days. On the seventh day, he has to shave all his hair again, put his clothing in the mikveh, and go to the mikveh again. And on the eighth day, he brings the korbanot of the mitzorah, which include two kvasim, one that's an ola, and one that is an asham, mitzorah. And he has to bring a kivsachat, which is a chatat, and he has to bring, then, a Kurban Mincha that also includes a Log Shemen, which we'll use later on to sprinkle on him when he comes to the Migdash. So all of that, or all of those requirements, according to Rashi, are only true of a Mitzorah Mukhlat. And that's because of this Limud of Abaye, which says that only if it's Taloi Berifuato, they trigger the need for all of this Tara, not if it's Taloi Biyamim, which is the din of a Mitzorah Muzgar. Okay, we're going to stop here by the Mishnah on the bottom of Chet Amudbet.